0: This is Masters in Business with Barry
1: Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: For the long holiday weekend, we're going to try something a little different. My Bloomberg opinion colleague, John Authors, has begun an online book club. He looks at some of the classic and new books on the world of finance and investing. Joining us is Christine Harper. She is the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg Markets. John is the quintessential Englishman in New York. Before joining us at Bloomberg, he spent 29 years at the Financial Times. The first book in John's series is from Peter Bernstein. For those of you who are not familiar with Peter Bernstein, he is the Michael Lewis of his day. He began writing in the 60s and 70s. The book that we talk about today is Capital Ideas, The Improbable Origins of Modern Wall Street. Uh, Bernstein published this in 1992. You probably are familiar with some of Bernstein's other work. Uh, I just adore Against the Gods, the remarkable story of risk, Uh, probably his best known work, which tells about the rise of probabilities and statistics and actuarial tables and the insurance industry and why modern finance owes such a great debt of gratitude to the early People who were working on statistics and mathematics, you know, back in the day when ships would go overseas and try and come back with spices, it was a uh, risky and dangerous venture. The ability to insure those trips, the ability to figure out the odds of safe return and build in a reasonable um, compensation for those who didn't come back. Well, that was really, really important, and that was developed by early statisticians and probability theorists. Eventually, that becomes the modern insurance industry. John wanted to focus on a book of Peter Bernstein called Capital Ideas, The Improbable Origins of Modern Wall Street. It tells the history of how modern finance developed, and really, it's quite fascinating, Uh, tracing the pioneering work of early scholars to the development of new theories on risk and valuation and returns. Uh, really a very interesting book. So let's jump right into our conversation with John Authors and Christine Harper discussing Capital Ideas by Peter Bernstein. What made you guys start with this book given the, what is it, 300,000 books published annually <laughs> plus the 700,000 self-published? Uh, what, what made you go back to 1992 Peter Bernstein uh, as the first book to to experiment with this,
1: I feel it's very important actually to look not just at the books that have just come out, but at the books that have been uh, that have come before and that we may no longer have be paying attention to because often there is information that's hidden there in uh, in clear sight. I'll give you one anecdote to uh, to back that up. Um, uh, Donald Steele of the Barlett and Steele. Um, investigative journalism partnership, they won a bunch of Pulitzers for investigative journalism at the Philadelphia Inquirer, came and gave a talk while I was at journalism school too many years ago to think about now. Somebody asked, where do you get most of your scoops from? Where's your main place you get your scoops? And we were all expecting from, you know, underground, dark parking lots from anonymous sources or or whatever. Uh, And he said, from rereading my old notes. Hmm. You, you find out, you talk to people, you talk to 20 more people, and then when you go back to the first person you talk to, you realise now what the critical question is and that they answered it for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I then discovered, I've, I've not written that many books myself, but I've discovered precisely that has happened, that uh, on trying to unlock the key of a narrative, try to say something clearly, it's often going back to much earlier transcripts that had sort of, Said, you know, become a sediment in my mind, and that I hadn't actually re-examined, actually gave me precisely the clarity, answered the questions that I was uh, asking again, forgetting that I actually had the answer to them sitting in my notebooks. So that's one critical part of it. I feel very strongly that we shouldn't just be looking at the books that have just come out. In the case of Capital Ideas, partly it's very, very good. Nobody was going to say this isn't a very well-written book. Um, and also, I thought it was very important to look at these ideas written at a time before the crisis, because for the last 10 years, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, the crisis was the most exciting period any of us who've been long-term financial journalists or working finance have ever known. And for the last 10 years, it's been almost impossible to look at anything other than through the prism of that crisis, and that's particularly true of some of these uh, ideas that are mentioned by by Bernstein. I thought it would I thought it would might be very revealing to take a look at them, uh, what, what people were saying about them in 1992.
0: Isn't it true that whatever we're looking at, you know, the expression is every general fights the last war. Don't all market commentators and indeed traders and investors have their perspective colored by whatever the last big disaster was uh, we would still be talking about the dot com collapse and the crash of technology and why value does so much better than technology but for the financial crisis intervening or am i overstating that
2: that's absolutely right and i think one of the one of the things a lesson for me and i was a journalist covering the financial industry during the crisis and i think that very much colored my perspective on finance in that i saw the reliance on financial modeling and sort of statistical assumptions as flawed, given the flaws that were exposed. And what was valuable to me in reading Capital Ideas was recognizing in that book, how important those models were, and that they just haven't been with us all forever they were they had to be created and they were very valuable maybe they were taken too far I think people would m- mostly say they were but without them we well, would be in well, equally as much trouble so there, everything is sort of a reaction to the, the last problem we had and with capital ideas there were too many people who just thought human judgment was the, the way to pick company stocks and um, you know they showed there's actually systemic you know analysis that should go into it. But maybe we went too far, and there was too much systemic analysis, not enough judgment.
0: What What do you What models do you think were pushed too far? And it's one thing if we talk about um, the Gaussian copula and things like that. But specifically, these are really very basic ideas that eventually got implemented. It's kind of funny to read. Oh, this is the person who figured out that reward is a function of risk. I just always assumed. Because it's been so fundamental to me, it's hard for me to imagine. So the parallel is, you know, kids today who who play with iPads and technology and apps, there is no online and offline. There just is. Right. Mm. If you're old enough, oh, this is online, this is offline. A six-year-old, no, no, that's just how the world is. It's digital, it's this, it's that. So to me, risk and reward have always been two sides of the same coin. Exactly. It's hard to even imagine what it was like. Wait, people didn't know that, that yeah. your reward was a function
2: of how much risk you were assuming? Right, and yet there there's this kind of inherent belief that we can measure future risk by yeah. looking at, you know, John has had a lot of online discussion about this volatility is telling you future risk. And that helps to a point- but not maybe all the time and then also liquidity you know the the, the assumptions about liquidity that were going on during the crisis or the buildup to the crisis were very flawed mm-hmm. and so those those are two things that I think were were problematic
0: I, I think in finance if we eschew the word measure and replace it with the word estimate or guess we're much <laughs> better off because Hey, I'm guessing this is how much liquidity right. will be until it evaporates, or we're estimating how much risk there is. It creates a recognition that this isn't a hard and fast measure. The old joke: Why do why do economists provide data to the third decimal point to demonstrate they have a sense of humor? I, one, so, how did
1: how did people respond? I would say that we had two main areas where people had a problem. Uh, other than points of people pointing out you know, particularly nice little gems of Bernstein wisdom. The first was that many people didn't quite grasp that risk in these models has been defined as volatility. Uh, and many of them felt, I think, quite accurately that there is much more to what they think of as risk than the version of volatility that uh, Sharp and others put into their their, their uh their models. Let's mm.
0: put a pin in, in right there and, and digress a bit. Why do you believe people
1: think volatility is equivalent to risk? It's largely speaking, that's how it's defined. If you look in the uh, the models that, I mean, uh, in its final form, I guess, Bill Sharp mm-hmm. comes up with. Uh, and the Sharp ratio, which we're all used to as a risk-adjusted return, is, you know, is, the return divided by the standard deviation and so on it it's um and while it's plainly very important to grasp that you get money you 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 get money by taking a risk that if you really want to make yourself rich you're going to have to to take a chance um the risk that people are bothered about uh are for many institutions it's about matching their liabilities
0: Meaning the future obligations they yes. have on a longer term funds, Or even endowments, right?
1: surprisingly. To, you know, even endowments are worried about whether they can match their commitments for the future. And it's about drawdown. It's not about will this return waggle around a long way over the next 30 or 40 years, but on balance, particularly if I don't have to access it all at one time, I'm going to be fine. It's is it going to do very well for a long time and then crash and I'm never and, and subject me to a drawdown I never quite recover from, uh, and that is much closer to the version of risk that people had in mind, and it's not the version of risk that's enshrined in uh, in Capem.
0: The one from the book mm. that I really
1: liked was more things can
0: happen than will happen, yes. which is really a variation of the tra- classic definition of risk, which is the possibility that your f- future expected returns will not be met. Mm. And and that's a pretty simple yes. definition as well, but they both sum up, hey, you know, if markets return X a year, let's use 10% over long periods of time, there are certain years where you're not going to get 10% and that's risk, or at least to an investor who may need the money at a specific date in the future.
2: Part of the issue, I think, is that if you're an academic and you're trying to create a essentially a mathematical model, you need you need some number, some input that you can put in that model. And so what are you going to get to measure risk? What's the number? Volatility is a number. so maybe that's the closest you can come
0: and it and it responds to John's reference of of drawdowns right If you need if you have a specific liability at a future date, and right before that date, one of these big ugly drawdowns occurs. Just look at what took place in the fourth quarter of twenty eighteen and the first hmm. quarter of twenty nineteen. If you needed that money in December, you were in trouble. If you could wait till April, hey, it's everything's coming up roses. Sure. So it's not true risk, but it's
1: volatility combined with liability. Is that that a fair statement? I think I think it is. That said, following on from what um, uh, from what Christine just said, yes it's important to have a number, but there is a risk that you drift into the fallacy. This was a comment that more than one person made. You drift into the fallacy of the streetlight effect. Mm -hmm. I didn't know until now where the streetlight effect name comes from. It's about a drunk who is looking for his keys underneath a streetlight. <laughs> yes. And uh, the policeman asks, are you sure this is where you dropped them? And he says, well, no, but this is where I can see. Right. And, uh, well, I
2: mean, and that is, I mean, back to the financial crisis and what yeah. were some of the mistakes is that the data that was available on housing prices was plugged into everybody's risk model on, you know, That's my second housing. yellow
0: flag because... We have multiple examples of enormous drawdowns in housing prices which nobody wanted to enter into their system, the biggest clearly being the the Great Depression, where yeah. by some measures New York City real estate fell 90% in value and real estate collapsed around the country right. in price. But there are other examples in California in the 1980s, in New York but, in the but 1990s. But wasn't the argument
2: that nationally- Housing prices have, no, and I agree with right. you on the on the Great Depression, but they probably well, that's said well, that's not going to happen, one, hmm. right? On
0: average, right. But real estate is local, and the joke exactly. is if my head's in the oven and my feet are in the freezer, on average, I'm comfortable.
2: Well, but, okay, but I'll just say that the models that were employed did not use data. Yes. Whether it was available or not, I agree. Ma- they probably- chose to
0: use recent data, right. which basically told them what they wanted to hear, exactly. which is a So their free light was
2: data. a little too narrow. That, that's exactly <laughs> right. right. But,
0: but that goes to your point that models get pushed too far. And if it's garbage in, garbage out. If we're only going to take an era... We're not going to go out of sample. We're not going to go international. We're not going to go back 100 years. We're only going to use uh, the ultimate back test is only use data that gives you the result that you want. And Bernstein
2: mm. makes that argument. I mean, mm-hmm. he does say in this book that your your models are only good as good as the data you have, and so he was aware of that. But it's interesting how far the models were pushed so without yeah. understanding that. I mean,
1: one other, one other interesting thing is how much you see in the book. How some of these models are based on simplifications, which the people know they're making in order to be able to render it um, uh, usable at all. Mm-hmm. Now, the the one example I'm really thinking of here is Bill Sharp and the concept of beta. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the idea the idea that um, the whole the whole basis of the valuation of a stock is based on uh, its sensitivity to the market as its one most important overriding factor. And the reason that he came up with that, because, yes, it is more, probably that's the single most important factor in why most share prices move. But the reason he came up with that is for, for to make it calculable, because you had to have one overriding factor and then add on others thereafter if you wanted to make the math doable you need a number and uh, and you know beta particularly with the growth of passive investing arguably is even more important than it used to be but it skews attention in ways that might be dangerous and it helps it because it's such a nice clear cut number it gives us the comfort of a clear answer that we forget that it was based on what was knowingly a simplification when it first came out. The reason we are calculating things with the notion that beta is the single most important element of the return of a stock is because it was just too difficult to to calculate if you were going to have a number of different factors.
0: That chapter and a later chapter references the the variance and the correlation between individuals, variance Mm. between different parts of a portfolio, but also how much an individual stock will trade relative to the Mm. market. And something... I have been told since I first started trading stocks a hundred years ago is that a third of the price movement is the stock, a third is the market, and a third is the sector. That's referenced in the book, but nobody ever bothers to define that. Yeah. Has that was that tested in here? Has anybody actually said, Well, here are all the correlations, or are we just all taking that for granted?
1: I think farmer and French tested it? Did well they did enormous Empirical work, which basically disproved the contention that that markets are efficient, in my opinion. Um, Right. uh, And yet reached the conclusion that… Markets were efficient, but that here were all these inefficiencies that could be explained somehow or other. I'm being sarcastic because I don't don't quite… I think they did a brilliant piece of empirical work… and it's wonderful that they published something which basically suggested the original hypothesis was wrong. Well, but well, I'm not quite sure that I agree with them that, that the original hypothesis was right nevertheless.
0: The, you need a catchy nomenclature. You need a catchy mm. title. And the mostly, kind of, sort of, eventually efficient market hypothesis, I don't know if that's winning mm. any Nobel Prizes, even though it's much more accurate. Yes.
2: Well, I mean the, the the problem with the efficient market hypothesis is it relies on a lot of people going in and trying to beat the market.
0: Um which we've seen and, and some people, let's talk about Professor Andrew Lowe at MIT. Hmm. He's argued that you need five or six percent active market participants, ninety plus percent can can index hmm. and that should be enough to for, for price discovery to work. Um but what's it,
2: in it at some point, what's in it for the active market participants?
0: Well uh so so now I'm gonna I'm just gonna keep dropping names. Michael Mobison and the Paradox yes. of Skill uh effectively says that you it's not hard to beat the market because people are dumb. It's that there are so many smart talented people and there just isn't that much alpha to go around. So maybe if many of these smart talented people go away, it's less competitive and I don't know where the number is, 30%, 10%, Andrew Lowe's 5%. Those folks will have an opportunity to beat the market, and then it'll start swinging the other way. And, of course, some people say
2: that what people believe to be skill is actually blind luck.
0: So let's talk about Bernstein personally for a minute Mm. because what you just said seems so much of an era that may or may not be valid any longer. Mm. I was surprised in the book to read him discuss his clients and his own participation in the market, I had no idea that he was a professional investor and an advisor. I assumed he was a professor and or a historian based on how well researched and written, um, The Power of Gold and and Against the Gods, these read like academic books that are just beautifully written. Hmm. So here's the question, for a person in a post-war era where the you know the thundering herd of Merrill Lynch and and all the different things that were taking place in the 50s 60s 70s it seemed like stock ownership was moving from a rarefied wealthy person's hobby to fully democratized and here we are now back to bigger levels of of wealth inequality and it seems what what's the stat everybody likes to throw out? Ninety percent of the stocks are owned by the top ten percent, something like that. The top one percent owns forty percent. So, have was Bernstein of the moment in democratization and extrapolated that trend out forever? Did he? Did he? Or am I overstating well, that and just looking at it from I this? I would perspective? just say, I mean,
2: one point he makes is that in you know. Uh, capitalist countries like the U.S. at the time he was writing, it's assumed that markets are good, and the countries that were coming out of the Soviet, you know, world, like war, you know, the Poland was very excited about having a stock market. Right. So there has been a democratization of markets globally. globally. Yes. Mm. So what's interesting, and we've documented a little bit in uh, various articles we've written, is that if you look in some what you call developing markets around the world they're very keenly developing these public markets whereas some of the more sophisticated markets are now going into more private markets and so i i just find that fascinating whether there's a sort of a the you know a curve at which you know societies go beyond private markets into this world of making privately owned companies more you know, widely owned or more of an investment opportunity. We
0: we have a very specific legislative history with the Jobs Act under President Mm. Bush that basically changed the game for private companies. And it's not a coincidence that what is it? A decade later, we have all these unicorns, yes. billion-plus-dollar valuations that haven't gone public. Well, and you they have, would have had no choice. but well, to go and you public.
2: have you have you know lots of pension funds that own v- venture capital, they own private equity, right? So in a way, even though it's through multiple layers of institution, you have the average person owning pieces of non-public companies.
0: The average person through, you mean, public yeah, they employees have, through their own yeah, pension and other pension, pension yeah, funds.
2: you know, mm-hmm. your, your it's college It's a tiny slice. And yeah, I, it's still small, but I think the question is, and I think a lot of people in the industry would say that's the future. I mean, you hear some quant traders talk about bringing quant strategies to private equity.
0: Um, I don't see why you couldn't have an overlay of quant onto anything that could be reduced to a mathematical basis the problem with that is so much of this seems to be intuitive and um, what's the word I'm looking for um, driven by human judgment there are areas where machine learning and AI and technology are clearly supplanting human judgment I'm I'm not so sure that that AI uh, VC and, and PE are the places where that's going to happen although I could be completely wrong
2: well and there's also a liquidity hmm. issue.
0: Uh, well that's the always the liquidity premium for venture capital and private equity and the same thing with gated withdrawals and and um you know lockup periods for hedge funds you end up with is is it purely a liquidity premium or is that just you know something to create a little smoothing for managers
1: now on the subject of liquidity we've actually managed to come to the second big point that people made in their responses to uh ah. to Bernstein um there is very little the word liquidity does not occur half as much as you think it would in uh, a book about all these fundamental ways in which people go about allocating their assets in public markets um and not unreasonably a lot of these 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 people are geniuses that we're we're covering most of them at the time they were developing their theories had little or no experience of actually trading in markets. They were very interestedly looking at uh, lots of data and bringing very fresh perspectives to it. Uh, And they were certainly operating in an era before um, uh, the degree of liquidity that we have found in the recent years was possible, and therefore where the sudden changes in levels of uh, liquidity Uh, of recent years was possible and you could try to to say well you can just add liquidity as a factor it has suggested that in recent years that low liquidity stocks could be a factor along the same lines as value or momentum or whatever the the cap size
0: argument has been you the the premium you get for small cap over large isn't it is not is in part a liquidity factor yes
1: but I think this is where, the, where people were nervous about the uh, discussions of risk, the original risk models. Um, the level of liquidity is very important and it's not exogenous. If things begin to go bad, there will be less liquidity. When there is less liquidity, the price will move more and that will beget still more illiquidity. Um, and we've had some very interesting, uh, quite technical. So I'm not going to try to summarise them, but interesting responses from options traders. Basically, uh, I suppose um, the very simplified way of putting it um, in, is uh, when um, when volatility goes up, correlations go to one. You know, mm-hmm. all their all their clever ideas disappear. Uh, you know, the various ways they've tried to uh, protect against risk. Um, gets much more, uh, much more prejudiced, much more compromised. When liquidity dries up, everything comes down to the same thing. And, and the 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 concept as well that when liquidity is drying up, you sell what you can sell, not what you think is worth. Can reach a higher price than it's worth. Uh, you sell just whatever you can sell if you need to sell something. So let's talk about three things. One is liquidity,
0: one is correlations, but I but I have to bring up the portfolio insurance, mm-hmm. which was affected via options to be purchased in a crash. Now, I know I have the benefit of hindsight bias when I look back at this, but isn't it obvious that in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of a crash, buying put options, that are in free fall are, A, not going to cover your shortfall, and B, going to make the crash even worse. Uh, h- how did nobody point that out beforehand? And again, Bernstein has also the benefit of hindsight bias because he wrote this five years after the 87 crash.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just a good idea that was taken too far. And Was taken... it a good idea? Because well, symbi- in
0: hindsight, it sounds like a terrible I idea. I
2: think if it were on a smaller scale... It wouldn't cover your losses. Well, it might not. It might not have driven things the way that they, it sort right. of. There was this sort of self, uh, you know, reflexive kind of quality to yeah. it that there right. was so there was there the amount of portfolio insurance that was owned, really Too much. added to the problem. Right. So if it, if it was if it was done on a smaller scale, it might have been okay.
0: And I and I wonder if if the seatbelt effect uh, applied. Which is <clears throat> as we make safer and safer cars and add ABS and airbags and seatbelts, the death rate has fallen and plateaued. And the only explanation that seems to make any sense is well, people feel so much safer. They drive faster regardless of conditions. So all these safety devices don't help us other than letting us behave a little more recklessly. Did portfolio insurance have the same impact?
1: I think it did. Um, what I would say, if you, because Bernstein, was an extremely bright guy some of the comments he makes and the quotes he makes about the uh about black black monday are very telling because they make it clear um what the problem was and that the people who brought it up didn't really grasp it themselves (laughs) <laughs> so uh, Bernstein, and I'm quoting here: the the, the shortfall in plan sales was a direct result of frenzied conditions that violated the underlying assumptions of portfolio insurance that ready buyers are always willing to accommodate the sellers in the insurance camp, which obviously was an assumption. People forget. Almost I mean, liquidity that that
2: was, yeah. is a fancy word for ready buyers.
1: Exactly, and that's a good definition. And they realized that the problems of portfolio insurance in the crash were related to problems, and this is a quote from Hayne Hayne Leland. They realized that the problems of portfolio insurance in the crash were related to problems of market liquidity, not to some fundamental flaw of the underlying technique. If it's a problem with market liquidity, surely that is by definition, if it's a technique for buying and selling in the market. If a problem with market liquidity undermines it, Sounds fundamental to me, and then Agreed. this glorious quote that uh, um, Rubenstein, the other uh, Leland's partner in this, um, the two gentlemen behind portfolio behind insurance portfolio and- insurance, who've taken a lot of the blame for Black Monday, um, deservedly. But, yes, Bernstein quotes him to this effect: "As a result, it was the market that failed to provide conditions where portfolio insurance could work. <laughs> Naughty market." <laughs> The, 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 how dare the market mess with the model? <laughs> it, it's it's really
0: stop and think about that rationalization, which brings me to a, a, something that that is related to the correlation and the volatility issue. So when when volatility spikes and all correlations go to one, that very much hints at the behavioral issues of market participants. Which, as much as this book talks about a lot of theories, hmm. they all seem to predate uh, the Tversky and Kahneman and Thaler and Schiller and Absolutely. go yeah. down the list. There is th- almost nothing in this book right. that says, hey, sometimes, back to EMH and, hmm. and Pharma French— Sometimes investors are just plumb crazy and do such stupid, self-destructive things that all bets are off, and you just have to wait for the smoke to well, clear. Well, I think
2: there there is an anecdote about Black Scholes and how M- Merton Black and Scholes tried to mm. tried to put their theory into practice and and bought some options and and did some trades, and it they lost some money and they realized that um, sometimes the market knows things that the models don't.
0: So I want to. I want to ask Christine a question about something John said earlier, that the the two gentlemen who won the Pulitzers at um, Philadelphia Inquirer always go back to their notes, and later on in the conversation, it's what was written earlier but lacking context um, to be better understood. In the early part of the book, there's a quote from, I'm sure I'm going to mangle his name, Bachelier, how do you pronounce Bachelier. that? Bachelier, Okay, um, I spent uh, very l- much less time in Paris than you did, um, but I love this concept from 1900. It's so far ahead of the rest of the book, which is quote the mathematical expectation of the speculator are zero. Now stop and think hmm. about that. It's it's. Foreshadowing what a zero-sum game is in markets, yeah. it's foreshadowing indexing, it's foreshadowing passive over active. This is 120 years ago. How on earth has, did that just sit there, and nobody noticed it for I don't know, almost a century.
2: It's amazing, yeah. And it and it it should fuel every investor's um, insight into what they're doing every day. They so, ha- we sh- we should just have it taped to our uh, walls. Yes,
0: right, right to your to your trading, right keyboard. to your terminal. So, so given that we have all these PhDs today, we have all this work from Nobel laureates that makes the canon of investing. What should investors be picking up from this book today? What's what's the takeaway that professional investors should be thinking about uh, if they either read or reread this book?
2: To me, it was the the value of the economic ideas that have been um, uh, absorbed into the financial world and the limitations.
0: It's not just the value; it's the limitations. Hey, this is a better idea than before, but let's not get yeah. too far so ahead you're, of ourselves.
2: You're not. You shouldn't go with your gut. Mm-hmm. But you, you shouldn't assume the model is going to fill you with total confidence. But
0: what are your thoughts? Do you, do you think that's fair a fair statement?
1: Yes. Uh, I, I, sorry to be boring and, and agree, <laughs> agree. But basically, these models are good models, given that they're trying to model something that all of us know from our lives trying to cover markets are almost impossible to, uh, to model. Um, they are in most of the cases, they are things that when you're trying to work out how to allocate assets pick a, pick a stock or whatever, you should at least take a look at the math of them and if they are if they suggest that this would be a really bad idea, you should think very hard. Uh, they are you know that they, they are uh, a systematized way to enable you to think rationally. They aren't the kind of infallible, guide that some people felt them to be. Uh, And ultimately, the reason they became as unpopular as they did or because they were blamed uh, as much as they were for the crisis is due to factors of overconfidence. They did feed in, among many other things, to this uh, broad overconfidence that allowed uh, the crisis to happen.
0: So so here's a couple of bullet points that I pulled out of the book that I thought were fascinating and and maybe maybe you guys can can share some thoughts on this. The first was I had no idea that before the 1950s if you had a a trust or an estate that was being managed by a third party, the law was literally you can only have a 50% exposure to stocks and the rest had to be bonds or cash instruments that was
1: fascinating yes. uh, did,
0: did you did either of you before you read this book know that that was a substantial change in in how portfolios were managed
2: i i didn't realize it but it, it makes sense in the wake of the depression that there so would have been those kind of
0: ptsd people are sure. again the generals are looking back and oh uh, there can be a crash so therefore no more than 50 percent. that was the guardrail
1: well it, it, again it makes sense I, I i covered mexico for a while in the, the wake of the crisis I had to cover the moments um, more than a decade after Mexico's great financial crisis when they allowed the state pension system to invest in anything other than bonds for the first time. Uh, It took huge negotiations with the unions before they would permit them to put put, uh, retirement money into anything other than bonds. But again, given what happened to Mexico in 94, you can understand why the unions thought this might be a bad idea.
0: And and I don't want to give sh- short shrift to Paul Samuelson. John, you just mentioned him mm. earlier. So let me ask this question. Why did Samuelson's work send such shockwaves through the regular community of investors?
1: I, I think it, there's a beautiful anecdote. Um, it's actually Sharp that has the conversation with Bernstein rather than uh, Samuelson. But, but about, this, about Samuelson's yes, work. Yes, just um, Bernstein is talking to him about the investing he does. Uh, and uh, sharp says do you beat the market and uh, Bernstein is slightly offended at the time and also goes well how would I know how would you judge uh, which is astonishing in and of itself it's, it's that's less than 50 years ago that conversation happened and that was the moment that Bernstein really started, looking into all these ideas and taking them seriously. That was literally his epiphany right yes. then and there sharp forced him down this path mm-hmm. and and that to answer your question is also why people find found Samuelson so shocking. It seemed obvious that people who knew what they were doing would deliver value for you. It, the, the idea that they actually could not not not, not just did not but could not. Add value in the aggregate was just mind blowing. <laughs> what, what, what's astonishing to me about that point in the book, which
0: is actually fairly early, it's in a Bill Sharp chapter, there was no performance reporting. No one said, here's how we did this quarter, here's how our benchmark. The, the concept of benchmark did not exist. It's it's mind boggling, isn't that? You you deal with professional investors who live and die right. on their quarterly right. benchmark and complain about people trying to make them do monthly or weekly, which is but isn't it interesting silly.
2: how far we've come? That now it's I think what's more commonly complained about now is how much people look at the benchmark instead right. of at absolute instead of looking at absolute returns, right. right? So that you have funds that brag about making a minus. One percent return, you know, because the index was down three hmm. percent, and you know, obviously that wouldn't have happened in the fifties.
1: Well, the, and that that leads to the very strange concept. Um, I find this this, this 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 is a point that somebody um, made to me extraneously after after reading this. You 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 come to the you what a lot of these ideas weaken is the concept the sense of ownership so that now you can be in a position where you own a lot of a stock but you're underweighted so for example if in britain uh, you more or less have to have more than 10 percent of your portfolio each in bp and shell so if you decide only to have five percent of your portfolio in bp then you are underweighted you own it but you want it to do badly because you are betting that it will do badly even though your clients have five percent of their money Right, it. it's about tilts, not absolute ownership. But but right. yeah, and but the the concept of if you own it, you're rooting for it. Right, is but no longer it has disappeared completely. I want to bring this forward to the modern era. There was a quote
0: um, from Bernstein about industrials did not need as much capital as transports. That makes me wonder. Industrials did not need as much capital as transports. So if you're putting up a factory. You lead, need less money than the transports or the rails who had to buy rights of ways and, and lay all of this track, and then, quote unquote, rolling stock, a phrase that you just don't hear today. Yeah. Um, so what does that mean about tech stocks today? If, if Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars when it was, I think, 19 or nine, maybe, uh, programmers- um, follow the progression. Rails and transports needed a ton of capital and a lot of labor. Industrials needed a little less capital and somewhat less labor. Modern tech companies need a whole lot less capital and just a handful of labor. What does that say about valuations based on the ideas in this book? Are we looking at perhaps a shift that has allowed PE multiples to climb for the past half century?
1: Interesting question. Um, certainly the notion, ideas like like Tobin's Q or trying to come to an intrinsic value that is based on assets need to be revised with the notion of, you know, very much for the notion of intangibles. In- intellectual
0: property yeah. is different than factories and equipment.
1: There, there is a concept um, that Bruce Greenwald, uh, who I was taught by my MBI, that, that Columbia uses a f- franchise value and of earnings power, mm-hmm. i.e., that that Facebook may not have a lot of capital tied up in it, a lot of workers working for it, but it does have a certain amount of franchise power, which conceivably is weakening as we speak. But that's that is the measure you somehow have to uh, you hear, uh, to get uh, out of its talk to generate about earnings. the moat. Yes. Mm. Always, the, the need moat. to
2: have a moat around your business that prevents competition.
0: So, so that was the first question, and I, I think you've, you've sort of, I don't know if there's an answer, but mm. at least we. But I think I mean it's
2: it. interesting that just this idea that a, a company's ability to access capital should be dependent on its need, mm-hmm. right? Because now I think people will give capital to companies that don't need it so much, and then just a lot of executives get paid a lot of money.
0: Um, well, is that With all the buybacks, we just saw Netflix raise another $2 billion at 5% because, hey, content is expensive. Um, Uber has had no problem raising capital, even though they've just burned through a ton of it. You you could go down the list of of tech companies and unicorns that are so heavily capped. Look at WeWorks, which just filed to go public. Uh, They bought the Lord & Taylor flagship here in New York, which is a giant block-long Um, department store. Uh, The issue of capital flowing to places where maybe it'll be repaid, maybe it won't, it's kind of shocking, isn't it? What, What does that say about that? But the question I really have to ask, so the book is written in 1992. All of the academics, Harry Markowitz, Bill Sharp, Gene Fama, go down the list, are all born you know, either certainly before World War II for the most part. I, in fact, I want to say just about everybody was born before World War II, mm. and most of them did most of their work in their 20s, 30s, 40s, which raises the question, is there a person born after 1980 who one day might be mentioned alongside of them? Has has all the low-hanging academic fruit been picked, and this is going to be the pantheon? Or are new up-and-comers coming about who, you know, from the world of millennials, are there going to be any academics who can put out work of this stature and, and this influence? Well, you
2: mentioned the behavioral economists. For mm. sure. Right, so I would...
0: None I of whom would. are under 50.
2: Okay.
1: Um, well, Andrew Lowe, who is also beyond 50 at this point, but Andrew Lowe, what he's attempting to do which has come up with an adaptive markets hypothesis that is clearly an advance. Yes, I'm not sure he's quite managed to do it, although he's written fascinatingly about his attempts to get there. If somebody does get there, that would be very interesting indeed.
0: So that's my conversation with John Authors. He's a colleague at Bloomberg Opinion, and Christine Harper, she's the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg Markets magazine, about Peter Bernstein's book, Capital Ideas, The Improbable Origins of Modern Wall Street. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 250 such conversations we've had over the past five years. July 12th is our five-year podcast anniversary, so be sure and swing by and check out some of the special features we will be running that week. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together these podcasts every week. Robert Bragg is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project director. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.